Welcome to the Grace Point Church Podcast. Here at Grace Point Church, we believe in meeting people where they are and leading them to where God wants them to be. Join us now as we listen to this week's message. So we are in part two of our series, Prepared. And last week, what we talked about was that... um, Sometimes as Christians, and for those of you who are uh, with us here today, or if you're watching us online and you're not a Christian, well, then you get to kind of sit in on this conversation that we're going to have uh, with each other. But uh, one of the things that I think is, can be frustrating for Christians is that we get into these conversations, and they're not really even a conversation, but we'll have people who make comments uh, that we can't respond to fast enough, or that we don't know how we're going to respond So it might be that you're at a family dinner, Thanksgiving is coming up pretty soon, and you're there and you always have this this relative, you know, it might be a brother-in-law or an uncle who wants to keep you at a distance. They they don't really want to have the conversation with you, so what they do is they throw out these comments that are not really a question, because you know that if they really had an honest, sincere question and they wanted to, to really ask you about what it is that you believe, that you could sit them down. You could, if you could just get 15 minutes of their time, you know that you could sit them down and kind of explain to them why is it that you're a Christian. But most of the time, we don't get that opportunity. Because most of the time, the people that we talk to really don't want to have the conversation. They just want to throw something out there. And maybe you have people in your lives, maybe at work or at school or your group of friends, and, and because you're a person who goes to church regularly or you're a person who believes in Jesus, that they have already labeled you, you know, that Christian person. Oh, that's the Christian guy. Oh, oh that's the Christian girl. And, and they've already decided which social functions you can't be invited to. And, and, and it just gets to be a mess because you never really have an opportunity to talk about it. And you get into these things and you hear them and you get frustrated. And, and sometimes, you know, you, you start dwelling on it. And, and days, months later, you think up exactly the right thing that you would have said if you had a chance to say it then. But you never get that chance again. And so it's all gone. You never get a chance to respond. And so last week we started talking about that. And one of the things that we talked about was the fact that there was a man named Peter who lived uh, a long, long time ago. Peter, who was somebody that, that met Jesus, that knew Jesus. And when he was asked, what is it that we're supposed to do? This is what he answered. And we talked about this last week. He said in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Always be prepared to give an answer, or that word is really better translated, a defense. Always be prepared to give a defense or an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason, or everyone that asks you to give them an explanation, to give them the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared to give people an explanation, a defense, a reason for the hope that you have. Now, here's something that Peter is not saying. Because I think sometimes we can easily get into this place where we're thinking that there are so many things that we have to defend. As Christians, that there are so many things that we have to have an answer for. But that's not what Peter is saying here. What Peter is saying is that the only thing that we have to defend is the hope that is in us. The reason for our hope. He's not saying that we have to defend every crazy Christian person that's out there that's doing weird things that we can't understand. He's not saying that. 
He's not saying that we have to defend every single verse in the Bible, every single story that they may have heard, maybe that they heard growing up, or that some other person told them that just seems so crazy that it couldn't be possible. He's not saying that we have to defend that. He's not saying that we have to defend um, um, anything that goes on in the world that is being blamed on Christians. All he's saying that we have to defend is, what is our hope? He's saying the only thing that you have to be prepared to do is to explain why you have personally decided to follow Jesus. That is the only thing that you have to have a defense for. That whenever you are in a conversation, whenever you are in a situation, and someone asks you anything about Christianity, that the only thing that you're responsible for is to defend why you made the decision to follow Jesus. Why is it that you have hope, that you have confidence to follow Jesus? What is that reason? And no matter what they may try to steer the conversation to, that your only responsibility is to answer that question. And so Peter, he gave us a reason. When he was asked the same thing, what is your reason for being placing your hope in Jesus? And his reason was simple. It was the resurrection. Peter, who had complete faith in Jesus, and he was a follower of Jesus, and then when it came time for him to put his money where his mouth was, three times he denied Jesus. And then he came back, and the only thing that brought him back, the thing that brought him back into being one of the, the strongest and most faithful Christians of the early church was his belief in the resurrection. And so our short answer is, it's because I believe in the resurrection. In fact, last week we talked about this, and, and I'm going to apologize to the guys in the back because I got these slides mixed up. But the last week, what we talked about was that the quick answer that I'm suggesting to you is that when people ask you, what is it that you have your hope in? What is it that, that you personally believe that we said this? That the quick, simple answer is, I believe Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose from the dead. The resurrection. Essentially the same answer that, Paul, uh, that Peter gave. And that Paul gave. And that all of the early church leaders gave. And all of the early church followers gave. When they asked why was it that they placed their hope and their faith in Jesus. It's because I saw him die. I looked in his tomb. And the next morning we were having breakfast on the beach. I mean, think about this. He saw him die. He saw him buried. The next day, they're having breakfast. That's what he had his faith in. And then we added the second part. But don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's better than that. Don't believe it because the Bible says so. Because a lot of people say that. In fact, for years when the United States had the Great Awakening in the... In the late, I think it was the late 1700s, there was a great revival of, of Christianity in the United States. And from that time on, uh, this country really had a strong Judeo-Christian ethic. Over the last couple of decades, though, it's, it started to shift in a different direction. And in the old days, maybe not when you grew up, but maybe when your parents grew up, it was good enough to say that I'm doing it because the Bible says so. But today, it's not a good enough response. 
And part of the problem is, is that if you grew up as a Christian, if you grew up as an evangelical Christian, as a conservative Christian, if you grew up going to church regularly, then you were taught, as I was, that the Bible is the infallible but seemingly indefensible foundation of our faith. Now stick with me on this, okay? Because what we grew up believing was, was that the Bible is infallible. That you couldn't question it, that everything in it was true. It was the inspired word of God. You cannot argue with anything that's in the Bible. And then someone, when you grew up, as you, maybe when you got into college or as you got older and you started having conversations with people that were outside of the church, outside of the church that you grew up in, outside of the belief system that you had, and they started talking to you about things. And they started talking to you and telling you there is no way possible that creation happened in six literal days. It just can't happen. Scientists have proved it. Or they'll tell you, listen, I have read the stories and a worldwide flood just cannot have happened. That whole story about the metal axe head floating on top of the water, come on. We all know that that can't possibly happen. And so what happens with us is that because we were growing, growing up, we were taught that the foundation of our faith was the Bible, that when they pulled apart something from the Bible that could not be explained, everything else collapsed. That if you could pull out the stories in Genesis that Peter and John and Romans and all of the other books that talk about Jesus would fall apart. Because all you had to do was pull out one small part and all of a sudden you couldn't believe anything else. I was reading an uh, article, a BuzzFeed article actually, uh, a few weeks ago. And it was written by a young lady and her name was uh, Jessica Meisner. And uh, she, it, was a, it was a really, really great blog, and I should post it somewhere, but for those of you who want to read the whole thing, it was a really, really well done um, uh, article. And it was called, Why I Miss Being Born Again. And this young lady, she grew up in the church. She grew up uh, going to church every weekend. She went to Sunday school. She learned about God. She went to camp, um, and she was one of those camp kids, and she finally got to a place where she went to college. And as it happens to many people, maybe many people like you or people that you know, that as they grow up and they get to this place where they're surrounded by people who don't have the same belief system that you grew up with, that they started to pick apart parts of the things that she believed. And she could not reconcile what she grew up with being taught that the Bible was infallible with what she saw and heard from the people around her, that there are things in the Bible which are just indefensible, that you just can't explain. And so she ended up walking away from her faith. But she wrote about how she missed it, not how she missed talking about or hearing about Scripture, about Jesus, but how she missed the feeling of belonging to something and belonging with people. But this is what she writes about how her faith came apart. She said, we evangelicals, with our infallible view of Scripture ripped from our hands, were left gasping for air. If you crumple and toss out a literal reading of the Bible, then what does it mean to talk about Jesus literally dying for your sins? You see, what happened to her is something that happens to so many people, that 
this is what I believe. And in there, there's this one thing that just seems impossible. And when I can't prove to you that the impossible thing happens, everything else comes crashing down. Now, if you grew up in church, I'm going to say something to you. In fact, we're going to put it up on the screen in just a second. And um, it might be something that when you hear or when you see it, that it might shock you a little bit. But I want you to hang with me because this is not heresy. But it's important for us to get this. The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. The foundation of our faith is not the Bible. Now, track me with here for a second, okay? Because the early Christians, the ones who started, were there when Jesus started the movement of the church, the ones who were there for the first century when the church exploded and grew like it had never grown or has never grown since. For the first 400 years of the church, there was no Bible. There was no Bible. And yet people moved and people walked towards becoming a Christian, not because of the Bible, not because of something that was said, but because of something that they saw. Something that they believed because of something that they saw. See, I'm not saying that the Bible isn't important. I'm not saying that the Bible shouldn't be trusted. What I'm saying to you is, is that if we make the foundation of our faith, the Bible, all somebody has to do is pick apart one little piece and everything else falls down. But in reality, the foundation of our faith was not a book. The foundation of our faith was an event. And that event was the resurrection. But it, it still is the scriptures. And at the time that Jesus was here, there was no New Testament. At the time that Jesus was living, all that we had were what we call today the Old Testament and what people at that time didn't even call the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Bible. They called it the Hebrew Scriptures. It was what the Hebrews used and had as their word. And the reason that Christians take the Old Testament seriously is not because it was in the Bible. The reason that Christians take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously. The reason that we believe everything that happened in the Bible, the reason in the Old Testament, the reason that all of those stories come to life for us is not because they're in this book. The reason that they came to life to us and that we believe in them is because Jesus did. You see, those of you who are here that, were, are, that are Christians, this is not how you became a Christian. Someone didn't walk up to you one day and hand you the book of Genesis and say, here, read this. And so you went and you started reading Genesis and all of a sudden, whoa, this is amazing. Is there any more? And then, and then you went back to them and they gave you the next book and they gave you Exodus. And you started reading it and then, whoa, whoa, this is un unbelievable, incredible. And so you go back to them and they give you the Leviticus and you go through on and on and on. And eventually you say, okay, I'm a Christian. No one became a Christian that way. You know how you became a Christian and how I became a Christian? Someone told us about Jesus. Someone told us about what Jesus did in their lives or they walked us through a time in our lives and we saw that Jesus was in that. And we made the decision to be a follower of Jesus because of what someone said. 
And then after they make that after we made that decision, then somebody said, "Here, this is all about who Jesus is," and handed us the book. Do you see what I'm saying? We did not make the decision to be a follower of Jesus because of what's in here. We made the decision to be a follower of Jesus because someone told us about Jesus. And so we believe that Scripture, all of Scripture is inspired because Jesus believed it was inspired. And we take what is in the Scriptures seriously because Jesus did. In fact, this is how seriously that Jesus uh, took the Scriptures. Matthew recorded this, and this is the words of Jesus, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, in this particular time period, that's how they referred to the Jewish Scriptures. They didn't call them the Bible, because it didn't exist yet. They didn't call them their scriptures. The Jewish people referred to the scriptures as the law and the prophets. And so here's Jesus, and he's saying, listen, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, he's not saying that those things don't matter. He's saying they matter so much that they are the reason that points to why I am here today. If Jesus didn't believe and take seriously the Hebrew Scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament, then he would not have referred to them. In fact, in another place in Matthew, he, he was asked about the nature of marriage, and he responded by quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. In, in Matthew 19, it says this, Haven't you read... Because that's where you would read from the scriptures. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, think about this for a second. What is more compelling? For us to say, I believe in the story of Adam and Eve because it's in the Bible? Or is it more compelling to say that I believe in the story of Adam and Eve because Jesus did? And so whenever anything in the Old Testament is being debated or criticized, or somebody comes at you and says, hey, you know, I, I know you're that Christian guy, but this part of the Old Testament is impossible for it to happen, we can bring everything back to Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I, I get that. I get that that, that that part is really hard to understand, but because Jesus took the Old Testament seriously, so do I. Yeah, I know, I know, six literal days, you know, six 24-hour periods, it seems like that really is hard to believe that that's what happened, but Jesus took that seriously, and so do I. See, the faster that we can bring the discussion to Jesus the harder it is for them to for people to argue against it. Now, if you're thinking, I know I, I, I'm going to get ahead of you, and maybe this is what you're thinking right now, that how is it that we can use the Bible, which is where we get our account of who Jesus is, to defend the Bible, which is all of the other things that's written in the Bible? Right? It's like circular reasoning, like I'm using the Bible to defend the Bible. And, and this is an important thing, because if you ever get into a discussion with somebody, they may ask you that. They may dismiss everything that is in here, because everything that we're trying to prove, they'll say, well, you're trying to prove it out of the same book that I don't believe, so how can you say that you actually have an argument? 
Well, I, I need you to, to, to stay with me here. The word Bible comes from a Latin word which came from a Greek word which means books. And for many, many years, there was never any book that was called the Bible. In fact, the Bible as we know it today only came about at around 400 BC or 400 AD. And so when we look at all of the books in the Bible, and we've got a listing of them right here. When we look at all of the books in the Bible from Genesis, Exodus, everything above Matthew, Mark and Luke and John, those are all of the books of the of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call today as the Old Testament, all of those books in the Bible and then all the books that were written after the four Gospels. All of them together. These, all of these books existed. Every single one of these books existed before the Bible existed. Because the Bible is not a single book. The Bible is a collection of 66 different books. All put together in one handy case that we can carry with us today. But the Bible is not a single book. And all of these books written by all... by. Now I can't even count how many different authors there were. But all of these different books were all written before the Bible ever existed. And the most important books, which are the books that tell us about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by eyewitnesses or people who knew eyewitnesses who were there with Jesus. Now stay with me. The reason that these books can be trusted is not because they're in the Bible. The reason that these books are accurate is not because they are in the Bible. They are in the Bible because these books can be trusted and are accurate. Okay. When I was in college... Uh, I had to take an English class, a literature class, and they made us buy this book. It's called 50 Great Short Stories. And inside this book are 50 great short stories written by really, really famous authors. And, and it was really ridiculous because you had to spend a ridiculous amount of money and you only had to read three of the, of the stories. But they made you buy it anyway because that's what they do in college. And so I bought this book and you read the stories. Now listen to me. The, this is... What and, and many, many colleges use this, this book as a text. The short stories that are in there are not great because they're in this book. The short stories were great and someone put them all together and put them in this book. You see the difference? All of the books that were written that were combined together and put into the Bible are in the Bible because they can be trusted. They are not trusted because they are in the Bible. And that makes all of the difference. Because we do not have to defend every little thing that is in the Bible. And every little thing in the Bible doesn't shoot down because you can't explain how the walls of Jericho fell down. For those of you who know about the going around and playing the music seven times and then the walls just fell and they didn't have to fight. Right? We can't explain that, but because we can't explain that doesn't mean that we can't defend what our faith is and what we trust in. The Gospels, 
These four books, uh, the four books, of, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were first-hand accounts that were written within 40 years, completed within 40 years of Jesus being resurrected. They were written by people who were there. In fact, those books, those four books, had been distributed and had gained so much popularity that they had originally put those four books together and they were called the Gospels. They had been distributed as the Gospels even before there was a Bible. The Gospels Gospels are considered reliable because of who wrote them, eyewitnesses, and when they were written. Now, I'm going to propose to you that there is a date which is the most important date in Christianity. And it's probably a date that you have never heard of because it's not a date that we hear about a lot, that we, we even really study a lot about. But that date is 70 A.D. 70 A.D. This was the year of the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. In fact, it was like around this time of the year, August, September of 70 A.D. And so this is what was happening. In 70 A.D., we were about halfway through what we call the first Jewish war. It was a rebellion of the Jews against the occupation of Rome. And this rebellion started out as a regional rebellion, that there were some pockets of it here and then some pockets of it there. But eventually, they started organizing. And what started out as gangs of people started to become more and more people, and they were terrorizing the Roman soldiers, they were terrorizing Roman citizens, all in this area that today we call the Holy Land. And it was a huge problem for Rome. So what Rome does is they send Vespasian. Now Vespasian was a Roman general. He had been uh, just coming off of a victorious campaign of the Romans going into Britain. And now Vespasian was asked to go into Jerusalem and to quell this rebellion. So he marches into Jerusalem and he had a plan. Or he marches into that area and he had a plan. What he was going to do was he was going to go from town to town, from village to village, and he was just going to cause a ruckus until all of these rebels started moving towards Jerusalem. And once they got all of them in Jerusalem, that's when he would wipe them out all in one blow. And so that's what he did. He took his armies and he went town to town. And the people who were there rebelling against the Romans, they were either killed or they fled and they fled to Jerusalem. In fact, the, the, the people, the rebels um, who were there, when they went to Jerusalem, they even went to this place called the Masada, which was a fortress overlooking the Dead Sea. And this was also a Roman garrison. And so they went up into that fortress. They uh, killed all of the Roman soldiers that were there and took all of the weapons that were in this garrison and brought them back into Jerusalem. So they went into Jerusalem and they, they, they closed the gates and Vespasian came and they had the siege of Jerusalem. And he yells at them, come out or I'm going to kill all of you. But there was a river running through the back and they had enough food. And so they said, no. We're not going to come out. And it was interesting. You can read about this in history because this is one of the most fascinating things I've ever read about because they, they tried for years to break through and to get into the city, but they couldn't do it. And inside the city, all of these people who were fighting the, this rebellion, they weren't fighting. They were not only fighting the, the Romans who were outside. They were also fighting against each other inside the city. 
The only time where they would unite was they would unite when they were going out to kill Romans. See, they didn't just stay inside the city. They would go out the gate, go out and attack the Romans, and then come back into the gate. And they held the siege there for about four years. Now, about two years in, which is about 68 AD, um, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, he dies. And so Vespasian is, is dispatched back to Rome, and he becomes the new emperor. And then Vespasian dies, and his son Titus becomes um, the, the new uh, Roman general who's there, who's supposed to get rid of the, the, um, the rebels in Jerusalem. And so what Titus does is he builds a ditch around the city, 42 miles of ditch. And along those, he builds 30 to 40 forts to hold the place in. And he's keeping the people out and, and, and holding the people in, and he thinks he's going to starve them, and they don't. They're still in there. And now the Roman soldiers, they're getting angry because I've never been to Jerusalem, but what I'm told is, is that in the summers, it gets really, really hot. I mean, like Florida hot, like Death Valley hot. It gets hot. And in the winters, it gets so cold that sometimes it snows. And this Roman army has been there for now two and a half years. And they're mad. And so Titus is mad. And the soldiers that he's commanding are mad. And so what they begin to do is they begin to round up all of the Jews that they can find. And they start to crucify them. And, and crucify them around the walls of Jerusalem. So that the people inside could see what was going on outside. Could see what they were doing. The historian Josephus tells us that one day there as many as 500 Jews that were crucified outside of the um, building, outside of the city. And so finally, they, they, they build a battering ram, and they start to, to crash through the gates, and they make it through the first gate. And then they start crashing again through the second gate, and they make it through the second gate. And finally, they're banging up against the third gate, and they get in. And they go inside, and as they're inside and they're trying to take the city, the Romans are really, really angry, and they are killing and destroying anybody, everybody. And the Jews, who are still trying to organize themselves, accidentally set fire to the temple. And so the temple is burning down. And the, as the temple is burning, um, the, the Romans were still going in, and they were going in, and they were intent on destroying everything. In fact, Josephus who was with Titus, he says that there was about 1.1 million people who were killed in the siege of Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people don't, don't believe that it was that high. They were thinking that it's about 300,000 people. But you have to consider that the, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were only about one square meter, uh, one square kilometer. That was the size of the city. And they had 300,000 that were dead that they knew about. This is what Josephus writes when he's, he's writing about that day and what happened. He says this, The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those, and those who entreated mercy, those who didn't want to fight, even them, were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry out 
the work, carry on the work of extermination. And they destroyed the temple. They were so angry that not only did they destroy the temple, but Titus had the soldiers pick up the stones that were built the temple and carry them away so that the temple could never be rebuilt. And in effect, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it ended ancient Judaism as a religion. Because to the ancient Jews, that temple was the center of their religious life. This was the temple that Jesus taught at. This was the temple that Jesus healed at. This is the temple that was described all throughout the New Testament, and it was gone. It was completely destroyed. And they dragged every stone away, and the clear message was this. There will never be another temple in Jerusalem. And with that, left their connection to God. And you can go to Jerusalem today, and you can go to the Temple Mount, and there's still no temple up to today. After this, Titus went to the Masada, to that fortress on the hill. He went there, and he destroyed that. But when he was fighting to get into the Masada, the Jews who were inside, who knew that they were going to lose, they all committed suicide. Because they said that we will never be slaves of Rome. This is how committed and dedicated the people were that they were fighting. So Titus returns to Rome. Vespasian is dead, so Titus becomes emperor. And then Titus dies. And his brother Domitian, I think we got a picture of Domitian. His brother Domitian now takes over as emperor. And so what Domitian wants to do is he wants to, he wants to build something as a tribute to the successes of his brother Titus. He wants to, to build an arch in honor of his brother. And so he builds this arch. Let's go to the next picture. He builds this arch right here on the bottom right side. He builds that arch. That's the Colosseum behind it. And this is modern day Rome. So if you go to Rome today, you can go and see this arch. Now, here's the interesting thing. The arch was so important, or, or the, the, the siege of Jerusalem and the battle there was so important. It was such an important event that when um, um, Domitian was trying to think of what can we do, what accomplishment did my brother have that was so significant, that would really, really honor who he was, the accomplishment that he, he made was the defeat of the Jews in the siege of Jerusalem. And so he constructs this arch. And there's a, another picture here. It's a closer picture of the arch. And if you look at it, on the inside of the arch, there are engravings. On the left side, there is a, a there is, on that, on that left side of the arch, there's engraved a, a, a picture of, of Titus on a chariot as he's riding into Jerusalem. You got that next picture? Here's Titus on his chariot as he's riding victorious into Jerusalem. On the opposite side of that arch is a picture of the Roman soldiers carrying away all of the artifacts from the Jewish temple. This is how significant an event this was, not just to the Jews, not just to the people in Jerusalem, but to the entire Roman world at the time, to the entire Roman Empire. This was so significant that the emperor builds an arch in the center of town to his brother to honor him for this accomplishment that he made. 
Now, why are we talking about this? Why did I give you this whole story? For one reason. There is no mention of the war against the Jews or the destruction of the Jewish temple in the New Testament. Nowhere in the New Testament do they talk about this war. Because, and this is weird, right? Because if, if, if the Bible, as a lot of people argue, was myth, if the Bible, if these accounts of, of what happened in Jesus, uh, with Jesus, if, if the four Gospels never really happened, if it was something that was written years and years later, why wouldn't they mention this significant event? Because they could, you, they could have leveraged this event to make their story even more believable. They could have said, and yes, as, as, as Jesus was taken away, the, God allowed the temple to be destroyed so that there could never be another animal sacrifice because Jesus is now our sacrifice. See, that would have been such a beautiful story for them to, t- to put in there. There were so many ways that they could have leveraged this war and what happened to the temple. But nowhere in the New Testament do they talk about the destruction of the Jewish temple. Do you know Why? Because at the time that the, the, the Gospels were written, none of that had happened yet. At the time the Gospels were written, none of those things had yet happened. It hadn't happened yet. They say that myth takes about 80 to 90 years until it starts to surface. That, that a story that's true takes about 80 or 90 years before the, the other stories that compete against it or that say that it didn't really happen um, start to come in. I remember when I was in middle school that we uh, studied about the Holocaust in World War II. That was about 40 years out of when it happened. And if you had told me, maybe many of you studied it too years ago, few years ago or many few years ago maybe you studied it too and there were people who were still alive and they were talking about it they were writing about it there were video uh, um, movies that were made of it and we all understood that this was this horrible thing that happened but now it's 40 years later 40 years later and now people are it's starting to come up people are starting to claim that the holocaust never happened There are people now who are pushing a movement, a a story, an idea that the Holocaust never really occurred. That it was just something that was created by the Jewish people to gain sympathy. So it's about 80, 90 years out. The reason that the myths surface about 80 to 90 years out is because that's how long it takes for all of the eyewitnesses to die off. And as all of the eyewitnesses to the Holocaust start to die off, all of the people who were there, all of the people who went and liberated those camps, as they begin to die off, there's no more eyewitnesses to it. And that is when the myths start to come. But see, all of the things that we read about in Scripture, all of the things that we read about in the Gospels, they were written within 40 years of Jesus' resurrection. And I know some of you are thinking, now 40 years is a long time. 40 years is not a long time. It's only a long time if you're 40. But if you're more than 40, you know 40 years, man. It just goes by like that. And so there was no possible way that those accounts that were written 
were written past the time of the, of the siege of Jerusalem. Which means they had to have been written at a time when the people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, to his death, and to his resurrection were still alive. We're still alive. And so when people talk to us about scripture and when people talk to us about, you know, all of these crazy things that, that happen in the Old Testament, all of these things, that, these stories that, that, that they ask and they say, hey, it couldn't possibly happen. And they say, well, you know, try to defend that. Our defense to it is not to try to defend the things in the Old Testament. Our defense to it is to say that I take seriously what happened in the Old Testament because Jesus takes seriously what happened in the Old Testament. I don't have to prove all of those things. I believe in them and I trust in them because Jesus did. And I don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. I don't believe in Jesus because I read it in a book and it tells me about it. The reason that I believe in Jesus is because of what Matthew said and what Mark wrote and what Luke wrote and what John wrote and what Peter wrote and what James wrote and what Paul wrote. What all of these people who wrote at the time that it was all happening, who were eyewitnesses to it, all of the things that they said about Jesus, that is the reason why. Not because they were all put into a book. And, I, and, and if you're starting to think, oh, well, he's trying to say that the Bible is not important. I'm not saying that. But I think we need to understand what it is. The Bible is a combination of the books that were written by many people and the books in the New Testament that tell us about Jesus and who he was and the life that he lived were written by people who were there, who knew, who experienced it. And who went through scrutiny because if they wrote it, at the time that they wrote it, the people who were there were still alive. The eyewitnesses to it were still alive. So I take the Old Testament seriously because Jesus does. And the reason that I have my faith and trust in Jesus is not because it's in the Bible. It's because Matthew wrote about it and Matthew said so and Mark wrote about it. And Luke wrote about it. And John wrote about it. And Peter wrote about it. And James, Jesus' brother, wrote about it. And Paul wrote about it. And that is why we can trust it. Because they wrote about what they saw and what they believed. So the question for us is this. What is it that we believe? What is it that we believe? See, when people ask you, when people ask me, what I said is, listen... This is what I believe. If you want to know where is my faith, where, why I have hope in Jesus, it's this. I believe Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead. That's why I have faith in Jesus. Because he died for my sin and rose from the dead. But not because the Bible says so. No, it's way better than that. I believe it because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul all said so. And see, part of the reason that this is important is this, is because a lot of us get to a place where we put our faith and trust and the foundation of our faith and trust is our own personal experience. And some of you, some of you who are here today, maybe some of you who are watching us online, you're going through something right now. And if you place your faith and trust in your personal experience, and listen, I'm not discounting personal experience. There are many people, me many, many times, where my personal experience has just seen God work amazing things in my life. 
But if we rely as a foundation of our faith, our personal experience, it's going to get us lost. The foundation of our faith was an event in history that was documented by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul. That Jesus died for my sin and he rose again. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the issue of, you know, how, what happens when uh, bad things happen to good people. And, and I know that this is kind of long. And so next week, for those of you that are here, for those of you who are watching us online, you better get here next week. But next week, what we're going to do is to, ha- for everyone who's here next week, we're going to hand out a little laminated card that has this on it that you can put in your pocket or put in your purse. And then when you see that uncle coming to get his second helping of turkey and you know he's going to say something to you, you can just pull it out and you can have it right there and have it ready so that when he says that something to you, that you can jump right in there and you have an answer, a defense for your faith. That the reason that I placed my faith and my hope and my trust in Jesus is because I believe he died for my sin and he rose from the dead. And that these witnesses were there and they saw it and they wrote about it and they believed it and so do I. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. Grace Point Church is located in South San Francisco, California. For more information, look us up online at www.wearegracepoint.com.